And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you remain standing as we pray and commit this time to the Lord? Father, um, our hearts are stubborn, but we remember that your spirit was poured out. And the church was born, but we were sealed by your spirit. And by that same spirit, I pray that you'd make us open and tender to your word. We love you, and we pray that you would be honored in this time, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Ronnie. And if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I'm one of the pastors here. Jason, of course, is on sabbatical. But if you're new, um, you have actually caught us or joined us right about a midway point of the sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. So if you're unfamiliar uh, with the Gospel of Mark, Mark has 16 chapters, right? And the commentaries will tell you that the first eight chapters... Uh, we see Jesus inaugurating the kingdom of God. He's proving himself. He's, he, he, he's proving that he is the promised Davidic king. And we see that he was uh, crowned in his baptism, and we see him performing exorcisms and healing. And so he's really proving himself. Well, in the, la- the second eight chapters, starting in chapter 9, it's going to move, and it's going to show us how Jesus becomes this king. So our text this morning is right in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, and, and it kind of functions as a fulcrum of sorts. Between the first half and the second half is this really important defining confession. And Peter's going to say to Jesus, you are the Christ. Now remember, this whole sermon series is about all of us getting front row seats to who Jesus truly is. And this confession of Peter's is this distilled but true unmasking of Jesus' identity. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Lord, the King. 
Now, that sounds a little bit simple, doesn't it? It's not. It's not as simple as you'd think. It's actually very complicated for modern ears, uh, certainly for us to accept. Uh, several years ago, I think it was um, 2018, Justice Anthony Kennedy, he retired. And uh, as people were kind of reflecting on his legacy, uh, it's not uncommon when they retired, you know, for them to reflect on the legacy and see, like, what are some of the highlights of the person's career. And um, Justice Kennedy's had several kind of memorable moments. But there's this one sort of famous quote that you'll see get, it gets repeated often. Is in 1992, he wrote uh, the, the opinion, and he, he penned these words. He writes, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. In other words, liberty is, in in itself, it's the unencumbered reality to decide what your life, what will be your existence, what will be your future. In other words, we're only free when we can decide the course of our life with zero limits. So Justice Kennedy's words have proved prophetic over the last 25 years or so, right? I mean, just think about um, how natural those sort of philosophical, metaphysical words sound to us. I mean, maybe you agree, maybe you don't, but they're resonant, right? Because that's the water we're sleeping in. Extreme self-determination, you do you. Uh, That's what we value here in the West. No one gets to compel me to do anything. What's the problem? Jesus is the Christ, not you. That's the problem. See, our faith confronts this desire for self-determination. Faith should be, like, our faith should be confronting our culture, but honestly, the water that we swim in is actually shaping us. But when you read the words of Jesus, like, just go back over the gospel of Mark, read the red letters, if you will, you will know that Jesus is in the business of confronting. He confronts the idea that we are the single determining force in our lives, The community of Jesus should be the community that says, I do not need to be in control. I don't decide what's best for me. The Christian does not decide or define our own concept of existence of meaning and the mystery of human life. We are called to give over control and to believe that that's where true meaning and freedom come from when we give up that control. So this morning, we're going to unpack that unnerving truth. And in this confession of Peter, and it's given to us right in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see the answer to two important questions. In order for Peter's confession to become ours, we have to ask, who is Jesus and how does he become king? Who is Jesus and how does he become king? So that's our two-point sermon for you note-takers. All right. Let's begin with who is Jesus. So if you guys have been following our weekly updates, you know that Amanda and I this week celebrated 20 years of Blitted West, right? So got it, girl. Uh, 
So, you know, after 20 years, uh, four kids, four states, three countries, eight houses, uh, you really get to learn one another, don't you? This will be no surprise to you, but my wife, um, Amanda, has straight chill running through her veins, right? And I love it until I don't. You know, Amanda really uh, likes to take her time with things, uh, especially stories. Like, she includes a lot of extraneous details. She's like the J.R. Tolkien of storytellers. You know, you can see what's on the wallpaper when she tells a story. Um, And I can tolerate it until I realize that the content and the purpose of her story is to communicate an emergency, right? Like, she's trying to tell me, that one of our kids is, is hurt, and she's telling me about the wallpaper, right? And when I detect that this communicative act, um, when I detect that that's an emergency is what the story is about, I'll interrupt her and say, just tell me. Look, is Micah okay? Is he hurt? I mean, you can backfill the details, baby, but just tell me the end up front. I can't handle the long way around. I need you to shoot straight with me. Cut to the chase. All right, counseling has been good to me, all right? I've worked through these things. Amanda still likes me. But here's what I value. I really appreciate when people shoot straight with me. Just just tell me, what's this going to cost? Just tell me, what's this going to put me out? Like, you know, when you're making a really big purchase, uh, uh, you're buying a car, a salesman, or a mechanic, you just want the salesman to shoot straight with you, don't you? Like, how much is this going to set me back? No bait and switch. What is the cost? Well, Jesus is going to exercise that part of his personality. Jesus is a straight shooter in chapter 8. And let me show you how. So our passage in verse 27, it picks up. Um, it, it, Mark tells us that Jesus took his disciples to uh, the villages in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Now, we know from the passage right before that they're coming from Bethsaida, which means they took a really long trip. Now, I know that Bible geography is not everyone's cup of tea, but if you don't follow this, you'll miss a really important point. Caesarea Philippi is about as far north that you can go and still be considered to be in Israel. In this area, there's, a pocket, there's pockets of Jews, but it's really fully pagan. It is a Gentile city. Uh, the city actually used to be called Panius, uh, named after the god Pan. Uh, they even had a shrine uh, to the god Pan. Now, by the time that Jesus comes around, the deity Pan takes a back seat because Herod the Great shows up, and he ends up building a shrine to the emperor, the emperor of Rome. And then after him, Herod Philip comes to power right after Herod the Great, and he expands the city, and he renames it in honor of himself and in honor of Tiberius Caesar, hence the name Caesarea, Caesar, Philippi, Philip. So those two names together. So Jesus takes his disciples on this long trip to that city, this place that is filled with reminders of the powers that be in the world This city is filled with the shadows of incredibly powerful men. The emperor is recorded there as being worshipped as the son of God. 
So all the collected power of the land is represented in that city. And Jesus takes a moment in that powerful place to ask, who who do people say that I am? Like in the shadow of all of this power, who do people say that I am? Like what's the word on the street? Now the report's pretty good, right? Verse 28, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say some other prophet. You know, Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist back from the dead. I mean, there's actually all kinds of opinions. Some of uh, Jesus' fiercest religious opponents thought that he was actually aligned with the powers of the darkness. And we learned just a few weeks ago, about a month ago, right, that his mother and his brothers thought he was crazy. But none of those matter. He presses his identity to those who are closest to him. It's one of those destiny-making questions that rings true through the ages. He looks at them in the eyes and he says, but who do you say? Who do you say that I am? Peter steps forward. He answers for all of them. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the promised king. And listen, That's what Mark, the gospel of Mark is all about, that Jesus is the universe's rightful and good ruler. And Peter and the rest of the disciples have come to this place of understanding that Jesus isn't just announcing the good news. He does that, right? He's saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. He does that. But Jesus isn't just announcing the good news. He has, they've come to the place to understand that he is the good news. He has, like, become the good news, right? And so they tell him. They look at Jesus and say, we know. Like, we know who you are. We know that you are the final son of David whose rule will overthrow our enemies, the true king of Israel, and you will spread restorative healing and justice to the whole world. We know Now listen, forget that at that moment, they can't even fathom, dream of how Jesus would do that. They couldn't dream it in a million years. Forget that they severely misunderstood the nature of his kingly rule and the depth of his love and have no idea the scandal that they're walking into. In that moment, to know what they knew was a really big deal. And right then, to follow Jesus fully is what mattered most. See, that confession of Peter sits right in the middle of the gospel of Mark because the author, John Mark, wants us to make the same confession. And in fact, that is the burden of the entire New Testament. Like the whole Bible is written as this ancient love letter to convince you of one thing, to make Jesus the Christ in every part of your life, in every part of your self-understanding. You know, later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he's gonna write to his friends who live in Corinth, And in his fourth letter, you know it as 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 in this case, he calls his friends a living letter. He calls them a living letter to the truth of the gospel. Like, think about that for just a second. 
the idea that their very lives have become a confession to the lordship of Jesus to such an extent that their lives are this personification of of that truth, right? Every part of their lives say, Jesus is the Christ. Like literally, you can't, you can't wash dishes. You can't drive to church, Jeff. You can't discipline your kids without this confession present. I mean, think about it like a mundane chore, like doing the dishes. Now is transformed into this sacred, joyful service of stewarding a small part of the creation that belongs to the king. Or like when you drive to work, you're not touchy anymore with bad drivers because you are not at the center of the universe. You're not. Jesus is. And so you drive with this deep, gentle forbearance for other people. When you discipline your kids, you're patient You forgive quickly. You don't take revenge because you have a vision of the godly, wise person your child is destined to become in service to that king. A living letter. Jesus, as he did for the disciples, he looks at us dead in the eyes and says, but who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? He is the Christ, and you, the living letter of that confession. Now, there's a second question that we must now explore. We asked, who is Jesus? But now we have to ask, how does Jesus become king? All right? Now, to fully appreciate this passage that we're reading, honestly, what we should have done is also read the passage just before us in chapter 8. And we don't have time to do that, so I'll kind of summarize it for us. But listen, sometimes when the stakes are high, it takes more than one shot to get through to someone. So although the disciples had the right answer to that question that Jesus asks, Learning how Jesus would become the king would take a couple tries for them to really understand, right? So Jesus' identity is being unfolded, and he he really, he he wants them to understand that. He wants them to have these right answers, even though it's slow in their understanding. And that's our story, too. So in the passage right before us, they're coming, they're in Bethsaida, right? Right? And the people brought a blind man to Jesus, and they asked Jesus uh, to lay his hands on him, to put hands on him. You know, now where I grew up, to put hands on someone means to, like, take them out. This means to heal them, right? He wants to heal them. Uh, So um, Jesus now, I want you to understand, he's really desperate for his his disciples to work these things out, to really grapple with who he truly is, to grapple with his identity, and the disciples knew that he wasn't just um, he wasn't just this carpenter from Nazareth that could do really cool things. So they had eyes, but even still, 
they don't see, right? They have eyes, but they don't see. And lo and behold, in this passage right before us, they bring a blind man to Jesus, okay? And Mark, you know, if we've been studying this, Mark's, you know, healing is pretty routine to Jesus at this point. Jesus is always being presented with people who need healing. So Jesus takes this man by the hand, leads him out of the village just a little ways. And this healing that Jesus performs described in a very sort of physical, tactile way. Jesus spits on his eyes. And then he puts his hands on him. And then comes the really strange part. He asks the man, do you see anything? Now, this might be easy to miss, but this is the first and only time that Jesus ever asks about the results of his healing, right? Like, it's really strange. It doesn't quite fit Jesus's M.O. The the results of Jesus's healings are usually an afterthought. I mean, this is Jesus. Of course, his healings work, right? Not here in this one occurrence. He asks, do you see anything Now, for as strange as Jesus' question was, that's not even as strange as this man's response. The man says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. I think that's my favorite line in the whole Bible. That's not one we commit to memory often. I see trees, or I see people, but they look like trees walking. I can see, but I can't see clearly. And that, too, has never happened for. It appears that Jesus' healing touch isn't 100%. And you can kind of tell that Jesus knew that that was going to happen the first time around. That's why he asks the question, right? There is so much going on in this healing. And maybe the healing was actually a parable for the disciples. The man then closes his eyes, blinks, opens them again, And now he sees clearly. Sometimes when the stakes are really high, it takes more than one shot to get through to someone. We see this enacted parable that's a filter for what we're seeing in our passage. The miracle was not so much for that man, right? He's going to get his sight back. It's for the disciples to address the blindness of his friends. They can see him, but they don't see him clearly. They don't fully know him for who he truly is. He's like a tree walking around. And what we're about to see is that Jesus needs them to see that they might be more hard-hearted than they're willing to consider. And so it takes a few touches, you see. And this is nowhere more obvious than what happens next in our passage. See, after Peter's confession, which was correct, mind you, the text tells us in verse 31 that Jesus begins to teach them. So Jesus tells them that he must suffer. Not that he will suffer, that he must suffer, as to suggest that Jesus is going to suffer voluntarily, like he's signing up for it. So the way that Jesus is going to become king is by suffering. Greatness through suffering. Instead of coming in as the conquering general, 
He had to be a suffering servant. Now, Jesus has a certain vision of reality, that God is not primarily interested in restoring Israel to its place of privilege and primacy in the world. He's interested in restoring the whole world, not just Palestine and not just someone's sight. All of creation. That is actually what Israel was designed for, right? They don't exist for themselves. So God's scope of restoration is cosmic. Therefore, Jesus' reign and redemption is also cosmic in scope. And suffering is the way that the Son of Man becomes king. And verse 32 tells us that Jesus told them this plainly. Right? You see that? No metaphors this time. No parables this time. But of course... Peter hears it clearly, knows what Jesus is saying, and he would have none of it. Because he knows who he wants Jesus to be, and he's going to make sure that he makes it happen. So he like, you know, Peter, right? He looks at the other disciples who are all a little bit alarmed at what Jesus is saying here, and he's like, it's, all, it's cool, hold my beer, guys. I got this. He's going to go and give Jesus an education. Verse 32, the text tells us that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You see that word? That's the word, the word that Mark is using there in verse 32 is the same word that Mark uses to describe Jesus when he rebukes demons. So follow this. Jesus rebukes demons. Peter rebukes Jesus. And then Jesus responds in kind, verse 33, get behind me, Satan. Not Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Okay, pause. Does that sound a little violent, a little bit dramatic? A little bit. It is. Here's what you're supposed to see. If you'll remember, in Mark chapter 1, right after Jesus is baptized, he goes off into the wilderness, and Satan, remember that? He's in the wilderness 40 days. Satan offers him bread, safety, and a kingdom. He says, whatever one you want, Jesus, I will give it to you. And here's what you're supposed to notice in chapter 8. Peter is offering Jesus the same thing that Satan was offering him in the wilderness. Jesus can be the conquering general, conquering king, instead of the suffering servant. I mean, he's powerful enough. He can take life by the horns and take control. But instead, he says, absolutely not. He will not do it. So Jesus becomes for us an example of giving his life over to the will of God. And God's plan is brutal. God's plan is bloody. And even now, Jesus knows it, but he walks willingly into that plan. And he even teaches us to pray like that. Not my will, but your will be done, God. So self-determination is not an option. He is fully subservient to the will of the Father. And through suffering and death, he would accomplish this redemption mission that the Father has him on. So Peter says the right things, but what he means needs to be corrected. See, Peter's dreams for Jesus and for himself are far too small 
Like they're far too insignificant. Like the blind man, we can see, kind of, but Jesus looks like a tree. But when the stakes are high, it takes more than one shot to get through to someone. And so we need to keep blinking, right? We need to keep staring. We need to keep focusing. Jesus becomes the king by giving his life away, by dying, and then by being raised up. To follow Jesus does not mean that you simply accept a set of beliefs. Following Christ is the surrender to the right to determine the, your a concept of existence, of meaning of the universe. We must turn over that self-determination, root it out, give it to him. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you must expect the same as what happened to me. Now listen closely. I'm not trying to be a masochist here, everyone. Am I saying that if you follow Jesus, you will lose everything? Well, for the original disciples, the answer was yes. That's exactly what it meant. All of them die violent deaths. You can read them. Only the uh, disciple John survives, and that's because he survived miraculously somehow being boiled alive. It all ends bad for these guys. Is that what he's calling us to today? Although that would be the fate of his disciples, what Jesus is actually after in this moment is the heart that is willing to walk into self-denial if that's what God is calling you to. Jesus doesn't want you to be miserable, but he does want you to root out and turn over that self-determination, surrender that to him. We don't get to determine what our lives will look like. Listen to me. We don't get to determine what our, what our lives will look like. Following Christ is the surrender of the right to determine our concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of this human life. So let's ask the question again. Am I saying that if you follow Jesus you will lose everything. Keep blinking, keep staring, keep focusing. What I'm actually saying is to follow Jesus, you will gain everything. I want you to hear this because I know this is really hard to understand. This is why sometimes the miracle of seeing doesn't take the first time. This is how come Jesus actually turns to the crowds in verse 34, and he begins to connect the dots of this upside-down kingdom that he leads. He says, and I'm just going to go through this, verse 34. He says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Okay, got it. I think we got that part, right? We got that part. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake, what? Will save it. You're gaining everything. By giving up, we're actually receiving. Verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The answer is there is no profit. 
right? There is no gain. What we get in Christ is infinitely more valuable to anything in this world. If this world and any of its pleasures are your biggest reward, then your dreams are far too small. Like, you know, C.S. Lewis, of course, you know this famous quote that he writes in an essay called The Weight of Glory. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward promised in the Gospels, it would seem that the Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Like we don't dream big enough. Verse 37. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Nothing. You can't pay for what Christ gives freely. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Church, hear me on this. Hear me on this. In this moment, Jesus is not ashamed of you. Don't be ashamed of being too closely identified and connected to him. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't be obnoxious, but don't be ashamed of tying yourself to this king. Sometimes the healing of our blindness is incremental, right? It doesn't take on the first time. Maybe, um, maybe it's confusing how Jesus becomes king. It doesn't quite make sense. I just want to invite you to lean into it. If when you look, Jesus looks like a tree, keep staring at him. Because that tree will turn into a cross. And it will become the single most beautiful and compelling thing in your life. And just maybe, you'll be willing to cast your lot in with him. Amen? Amen.